Good morning. Welcome to Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Thank you for joining us as we study through God's Word. Okay, everybody. If you guys will turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 this morning. As we continue our study. So let's just dive right in at verse 1. It says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So Jesus has been touring around the region of the Galilee and his disciple, you know, with his disciples, and now he decides to make a return to his hometown of Nazareth. And when you consider the fanfare that Jesus had been receiving, you might think that he comes back to a ticker tape parade where he gets the complete red carpet treatment. But that's far from the case. And you have to wonder whether the end of verse 1 gives us a clue as to why not. It says, and his disciples followed him. And I wonder whether that puts some people on edge. I mean, let's just think about that for a moment. When Jesus left Nazareth, when he hung up his carpenter's tools, when he set out to fulfill the mission that God had set out for him to do, he left under very humble circumstances. But now he comes back to town with an entourage. Almost like some Hollywood movie star or famous athlete. And you have to wonder whether that set off some people in his hometown. But there's even more to that uh, to, than just that. It wasn't just that he had people with him. It's that these followers, these men, were disciples. They were students of Jesus, which meant that Jesus was a rabbi who was schooling people in ministry. You know, back in Jesus' day, they didn't have these seminaries and theological schools. The only way that you'd receive that kind of training would be to attach yourself to a teacher or a rabbi. And then you would become their disciple and you would learn from them. And that is exactly how the Apostle Paul received his training in Judaism. He was attached to one of the most famous rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. Well, Jesus comes to town, and verse 2 tells us that when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. 
And what was the response? Everyone was astonished. And they asked, like, where did this man get these things? Like, where did this come from? (laughs) And, you know, that's not a bad question to ask. I mean, considering Jesus is in his hometown, and they all thought that they knew him, it's not surprising that they would wonder where this all came from. But unfortunately, they jumped to some bad conclusions. Notice how they speak to Jesus beginning at verse 3. First thing they say is, is this not the carpenter? My friends, that was not a compliment. (laughs) They're pointing out that Jesus never had any formal seminary. He never trained with a reputable rabbi. He was just a plain old working man. He was just a carpenter. So who does he think he is? And what I find interesting about this is that these people thought that the fact that Jesus had no formal training, so to speak, that this somehow discredited his message. Now, in the early years of Christianity, people used to criticize Christianity because it was founded by a carpenter. My friends, Jesus could have come as anything in the plan of God. He could have come as a farmer. He could have come as a shepherd. He could have come as a fisherman. He could have come as a merchant or a a, a salesman. But he chose to come as a carpenter. And you know, I think that says something very beautiful about the nature of God. Because our God is a builder. And he's a really good one at that. From the most majestic of mountains to the very smallest molecule or particle. From the vast galaxies of space to the very depths of the deepest ocean. From the intricacies of DNA to the design and structure holding all life together. Our God knows how to build things. Well, not only do these people take a shot at his profession and his education, but look what they say next here in verse 3. It says, the son of Mary. Now, we're not sensitive to it because we're kind of removed from it. But in the language and culture of the day, this was a real slap in Jesus' face. Because it was very uncommon to refer to a person as the son of his mother. You always refer to him as the son of his father. They should have then said the son of Joseph, but they're taking a shot at Jesus here. Now, it's not like they're saying he's a mama's boy. But it is a disparaging remark. They're criticizing Jesus. They're putting him down. There was a lot of suspicion surrounding him. And there was a lot of contempt behind those words. Now, if you notice at the end of verse 3, it says, 
they were offended at him. Now, don't you find that a bit odd? These people who should have been so close to Jesus, the ones who saw him from the beginning to end, they should have known very well that Jesus was what he said he was. There was not a single tradesman that Jesus ever treated badly. There was not a single person that ever got shortchanged on a deal. There was never a creditor that Jesus didn't pay on time. Every one of them knew his life, yet it didn't cause them to embrace him when he was older. The people said, ah, we know all about Jesus. He's a carpenter. He's a good man. But a prophet? A rabbi? The Messiah? No. We don't know that Jesus. And much like the world today, they were offended because of him. Well, look at Jesus' response here in verse 4. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. The first thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus won't allow rejection from his countrymen to debilitate him in ministry. In fact, he approaches it rather philosophically and he quotes a proverb of that day. A prophet is not without honor in his own country, but he doesn't let it get in the way of his ministry. And friends, that's just how it works. So often it's the people that are closest to you that will reject you in this way. But the second thing I want you to notice is there in verse 5. Jesus won't do a mighty work here except for healing a few people. And I find it amazing that the unbelief of these people limited Jesus. There's no doubt that Jesus wanted to do a miraculous work among them. It was just that he couldn't. His hands were tied, so to speak. This was a decision of his will that he could not do any works among them. Because Jesus wouldn't answer their unbelief in that way. So he limited himself. You know, it's very interesting to me that sometimes God will do a work when there is no belief. But my friends, he rarely works when there is unbelief. And there's really a big difference between the two because no belief says, God, I just don't know. I want to believe, but I just can't. 
Unbelief says, God, I don't believe you. I don't think you'll do it. And so I won't believe. Another thing I find significant here is that Jesus wouldn't perform a miracle just to amaze the crowd. And I know that would be the temptation if I was in that situation. Oh, so you don't believe me, huh? You reject me? Well, check this out. Bring me another dead man. <laughs> I'll sure show you. But he never did that, did he? So the first thing was he accepted it. The next thing was he was limited. He would not do a mighty work among them. But now I want you to see a third thing here in verse 6. It says he marveled at their unbelief. It literally blew him away. It's very interesting that we never read anywhere in Scripture, anywhere, that Jesus marveled at art or architecture. That he marveled at the wonder of creation. Jesus was not amazed at the beauty of the world around him. Jesus never marveled at human ingenuity and invention. He didn't marvel at the holiness of the Jewish people even. Or even marvel at the military dominance of the Roman army. But we do see in Scripture that Jesus did marvel at something. Do you know what that was? Faith. Or in this case, a lack of faith. Jesus was amazed at finding faith in a very unexpected place. Remember when the centurion came to Jesus with such great faith. And who would have expected that kind of faith from a Gentile man. But here Jesus marvels because faith is absent in a place where it should have been. These people should have believed in him. They had more reason to believe in Jesus than anyone. Friends, I want to ask you something this morning. Does Jesus marvel at your faith? Does he marvel because your faith is present in such an unexpected way? In spite of all the difficulties, in spite of all the pain, in spite of all the attacks from the enemy, you're still hanging in there through all of these unexpected circumstances. Or is it the opposite? Does he marvel because of your lack of faith or even unbelief? in spite of all that He's done for you, in spite of all the times that He's proven Himself to you, in spite of all the promises He has made and kept in your life, He is asking each one of us again this morning, how is it that you don't believe in me? Well, let's make Jesus marvel this morning in the right way with our faith. Amen?
Well, as we can see, Jesus was not going to step back from his work just because he was rejected by his own countrymen. In fact, we find in verse 7 that now he broadens his work and, and he called the twelve to himself and began to send out them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper, in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. <coughs> Look, Jesus knew that the end of his earthly ministry was in sight. And he knew that he didn't have many more months of being able to ministry or minister. Most scholars agree that the entirety of Jesus' ministry period was about three years. And while Jesus was on earth, he could only be in one place at one time. And so there was a real focus, a real urgency to train these men to get the word out. And so what Jesus is doing here is assembling his team to go out and do the work. And by this, Jesus was essentially multiplying himself. But notice here, he gives them very specific commands as to what they could bring with them and what they could not bring with them. And how they should respond if they're received and how should they should respond if they're rejected. And then verse 12 tells us that they went out and preached that people should repent. Now there's two things we learn from this very short sentence. First of all, we learn what they did. It says they preached. Now what does it mean to preach? Well, the word itself simply means to proclaim, to tell others, to announce the good news. And it it's in the same context as when I was announcing the upcoming events for OCF. And in that specific context, every single one of us is a preacher. And we should all be proclaiming God's message. We should all be announcing what God has done in our lives. And when you share something wonderful that God has taught you, then you're preaching. And that's a beautiful thing. And friends, I really want you to latch on to this truth, truth right here, right now. Listen, some of the best preaching that ever happens does not happen inside a church. Let me say it again. Some of the best preaching that ever happens doesn't happen inside a church. It happens when we are speaking one-on-one -on -one with somebody else. And then you're a preacher. And God wants you 
to be a preacher wherever he puts you. Well, notice the other thing that we learn here. We learn what they are preaching about. It says they preached that people would repent. Now, I know that that sounds like that's all they did was just preach repentance. Like they would walk up and down the street with a sandwich board shouting, Repent! Repent! (laughs) But I want you to look at that from a slightly different angle. Look, it doesn't mean that their only message was repent. What it does mean is that was their goal. That was their motivation. They preached in such a way to bring men to repentance. Meaning what? Meaning that they preached the love of God. They preached about His forgiveness. And they preached that the kingdom of God was here. And so what we need to understand is that our preaching is not about standing on the street corner yelling, turn or burn, trust or crust, try or fry. Yes, you preach with the goal of bringing them to repentance. But it's about telling people about the love of God, about the mercy of God, about the forgiveness of God. And friends, that is how Jesus drew you to himself. And in turn, that is how he will draw others to himself as well. So they went out and preached that people should repent. Verse 13, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Stop right there. This is very interesting. So they're preaching repentance, and now it says that they're casting out demons, they're healing the sick, and then there's something we haven't seen yet. They're anointing the sick with oil. Now, did you know that we only see this one other time in the entire Bible? In James 5, verses 13 and 14, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing psalms. If any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then the passage goes on to say that that prayer of faith will heal them. And I think that's a very interesting picture for us for two reasons. First of all, anointing with oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Oil is seen consistently throughout Scripture as an emblem or picture of the Holy Spirit. And when somebody comes forward for prayer here at Calvary Fellowship and they want to be healed, we will very often anoint them with oil. And no, it's not like pouring a bottle of oil over their head. We just take a little smudge of oil on our thumb and we put it on their forehead. And what that's saying is, Lord, we want you to pour out your spirit upon this person. We want to be obedient to what your word says here in Mark and James. And it's not like the oil is some magical potion. 
But it's an emblem of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Spirit of God can miraculously meet this person's need. But what I find interesting is that there may also be a double meaning here as well. Because in the ancient world, anointing with oil was a medicinal practice. Ancient Greek and Roman doctors thought oil was one of the best instruments in the healing of a diseased body. And they would often give a sick person a rub down with olive oil because they thought it was a very helpful medicinal treatment. Now, I don't know if it helped them, but it sure made them feel good. And so what we may be seeing here is that the anointing with oil may be saying, pray, absolutely pray, but also give them proper medical attention as well. And please understand, friends, God's miraculous healing and medical treatment aren't enemies. It's important to understand that. But now as we continue here, we're reaching a transition point in the passage. Because as the disciples are out doing their good work, another faithful worker has just completed his work. Verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it's the pro- it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. So the scene now fades from Jesus and his disciples and moves south to a palace on the eastern shores of the Dead Sea belonging to King Herod. And this King Herod was a son of Herod the Great, whom we know from Christ's birth. And so Herod is sitting in his palace and he's hearing reports about this Jesus character and debate begins on who he is. And some say he's Elijah. Some say he's the prophet, meaning the Messiah. Or he's a lesser prophet. But King Herod, he's sure that this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now why would he gravitate to such an irrational thought? And the reason why Herod is drifting to the irrational is because of his guilt he is tormented by this guilt because he was the one who would put john to death and mark is now going to explain the backstory for us here in verse 17 for herod himself had sent and laid hold of john and bound him in prison for the sake of herodias his brother philip's wife for he had married her now you got to understand, this whole Herod family was seriously messed up. <laughs> I mean, they were wickedly sinful people. We could talk for hours about the sin that derived from this family tree. But in this instance, Herod got tired of his wife. So he decided to marry his brother's wife. Yeah, that's not going to bring any fights. <laughs> Verse 18 says, Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not. 
For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So you have this wicked and twisted relationship going on, and you have John speaking out boldly and fearlessly against this sinful conduct. And this made Herodias, Herod's new wife, feel so guilty, she wanted him dead. But Herod wouldn't do it because he knew John was a just and godly man. But Herodias knew how to manipulate the situation. Look at verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So picture the scene. You've got this big, lavish banquet with food and drink aplenty. It's turning into a drunken party. And you've hired you know, women to dance around provocatively for, for all the men. When in the midst of all this, Herodias sends in her daughter to dance for her husband. And if you look at the emphasis here, it's as if Mark's amazed that she's even there. Verse 22 says, And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, it's like he's saying, No upstanding woman in their right mind would do this, much less a princess. And remember, this girl Herod's going gaga over is his stepdaughter. That is so twisted. And as her tip, <laughs> so to speak, he offers her anything she wants up to half his kingdom. Verse 24. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Friends, Herodias was pure evil, shamelessly parading her daughter just so she could exact her revenge on a righteous man. Because he had the audacity to tell her that she had sinned. But you know, I think the greatest tragedy here is that Herodias thought that she could lessen the guilt. That she could get rid of her guilt even just by piling another sin upon her. Friends, our world is becoming even 
more emblazoned in their sinful pursuit. What was once forbidden to even speak of is now paraded in the streets. All in the vain belief that acceptance will lessen or rid them of their guilt. And as sin upon sin is added, their anger increases against anyone who dares speak out. And it's a real tragedy today as it was here with Herodias. And what about the sad state of Herod? In verse 26, it tells us he was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths, because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. So the king went along with a murder that he knew was wrong. And it's no wonder this man was racked with guilt for doing so. It haunted him. And friends, when we choose to go along with what we know is wrong, just because we don't want to offend, just because we don't want to break the rules, because if you continue to go along with what God's Word says is wrong, then you too will feel the weight of that guilt that Herod felt here. And I'm not saying that we need to be aggressive and angry and belligerent when we preach. No. We preach with the goal of bringing them to repentance. And we do it by telling people about the love of God, about the mercy of God, and about the forgiveness of God. Friends, there's only one way to get rid of the guilt. One way. And that is to bring your sinful condition to the cross of Christ. Because He died on that cross to take away your guilt. He died to take the guilt that stains your soul. He died to take the guilt that troubles you today and maybe even incapacitates you. Jesus bore that all on the cross. Now whether you've given your heart to Jesus or whether you have yet to make a decision to follow Him, if you're carrying that weight of guilt on your shoulders this morning and that load is becoming too much for you to bear, why not give it to Him as an act of faith this morning? Jesus is here to set you free from that guilt. Won't you let him set you, free, set you free this morning? Father, thank you so much for this incredible example. Lord, I think sometimes when we think about repentance, we get this hellfire and brimstone mentality. You know, like James and John, call down fire from heaven, Lord. These are people you love. These are people that you came down and died for. Lord, they need to know your love. They need to know your mercy. They need to know your forgiveness. 
Lord, we have a world outside that is just crying for hope and for peace and someone that can just remove the weight of sin and guilt that's upon them. And Lord, you already came. The work's already finished. But how will they know if they don't have a preacher? So Lord, I just pray that you will work in each one of our hearts to help us to understand that we are your messengers. It's not just the pastor. It's not just the elders or the teachers. Every one of us is called. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us and you've given us this sacred message in earthen vessels to reach a world that so desperately needs you. Work in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to message us on our Facebook page or on Instagram. God bless.